Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, your maestro maven and maitre d' of penning perfect prose. Why, yes, I did use some alliteration there. Thanks for noticing. I just wanted to experiment with doing the intro as if this were a home movies blooper show in the mid-90s. What this actually is, my dear companion and one true friend, is a podcast about writing. Fiction writing primarily, although the hundred megaton blasts of knowledge I drop on the reg inevitably hit some adjacent fields with collateral wisdom damage. Would you like to be a better writer? Would you like to write more for that stuff to be good and to feel happy in your heart as you do so? Well, it's my intention to guide, cajole, lure and buffalo you down that rose-garlanded path. If you've listened before, you may very well be aware that, à ton de temps, I indulge in a spot of text gardening, taking one of your first pages, that is to say, the collective your, taking, in fact, a listener's first page and looking at ways to make it better. Because that's editing, taking what you've done and helping it level up. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that you can contact me via my website, Tim Clare, poet.co.uk. Just click on the contact me button in the right hand column and drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you whether you've got feedback on the show, questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode or indeed the first page of your novel polished and worked to a high shine of course that you'd like me to critique on the podcast. I want no more than 250 words of text in the body of the email, no preamble explaining what it's about and the beginning only please. Death of a Cut Death of a Thousand Cuts currently has no sponsors. None, that is, save for you. If you enjoy the show, if you get value out of it, firstly, please buy my novel, The Honours. You can get it in bookshops or online, in paperback, ebook, or indeed audiobook. Every time one of those sells, it's money in my pocket. It helps me to keep on being a professional storyteller and feed my family. And you get a copy of my best work. If you like what I do here on the podcast, chances are you'll really dig it. I hope you enjoy it. Um, lots of you got back and said you liked it, so fingers crossed. Secondly, uh, in the show notes to every episode and on my website, there's a link that says buy me a coffee rather presumptuously, almost impertinently. But if you click that link, you can uh, drop me a few bucks direct via the website coffee. That's K-O-F-I. Listener donations have allowed me to switch to a more reliable host for my website and pay for this year's podcast hosting on SoundCloud, neither of which came cheap. Thank you. Recording this is something that I have to postpone or turn down paid work to do. And look, I don't regret it. I do this entirely of my own free will. It's a choice. It's a decision. I love it. I love you. And I'm learning so much about myself and about our craft. That isn't <laughs> schmaltz or shtick it's genuinely true but listener donations are what have so far stopped it going from romantic folly to ruinous white whale thank you thank you so much i really appreciate it your help lets me make all these resources free at the point of access and i've had some incredibly generous listener donations actually i don't want to sort of segment them into sort of levels of generosity based on how much was given i know all of you who have donated have donated what you could spare and i really appreciate that regardless of, of, of the level i just appreciate the fact that you turned up and, and gave me a hand it you know there's a lot of people on the internet asking for your money and i i'm just grateful and thankful and you know, at the, at the bottom line is I want to make great stories and I want to help 
you make great stories. And with your support, I can at least do that without having to sell both my kidneys. OK, cool. Thanks for hearing me out. That was just a little spiel at the beginning of the show. Um, Here's today's first page extract. I'm going to look at first page and I'm going to look at ways of making it better. This piece is untitled and it's by M. Anis came up to the north wall at sunrise and studied the darker half of the sky. It was always sunrise, and darker by no means meant dark. Yet Thibith glowed so bright she hardly needed her telescope. He was the smallest and least consequential of her planet's neighbours, and usually a pale melon, not this shocking red. Without question, he was warning her. But of what? She set the ancient telescope against the unfinished battlement wall and turned resignedly to her books. Her divination equipment was spread out before her, along one of the low crenellations. Broken bits of the wall weighed down her loose papers. What a sad excuse for a castle. But it was her home, and defending it meant watching the ocean to the south and west and the green hills to the east, but most of all, the sky. She recorded her astrological observations in columns, labelled such things as relative position and movement. The column labelled date and time she left empty. Was a day that lasted forever really a day at all? Her chart was a hand-me-down, tattered and foreign, developed for a planet that spun on its axis. Annis's planet did not turn. Thumbing through her books and notes, she cross-referenced what Thibeth's shape, sheen and colour might signify. Transcribing the message in unpractised penmanship, a goat could write more legibly. She regarded her feelings with consternation. Unknown event, obstruction or possible advantage, approaches or arrives, in the near or far future. Anis read it twice before throwing her pen down. The stars and planets had been telling her nothing for ages, and now this vague nonsense? Okay, and here are my suggestions. Anis came up to the north wall at sunrise and studied the darker half of the sky. I'm, I'm going to just up and purge the least reasonable of my objections first. Anis sounds a bit like Anus. It's two closest metronymic relations, Agnes and Agnes, don't sound like Anus. Look, I'm, not, I'm just saying astrology is already replete with jokes about Capricorns coming under the influence of Uranus. I, I know Anis is a real name. I know I'm being puerile and, and, and deeply unreasonable. I just feel like you might as well have called her Bumella. Vesirius, though, uh, I would probably ignore that as a criticism. Anis came up to the North Wall is very woolly for your first action. What does came up to mean? Did she walk? Did she walk up to its base? How big is this wall? Did she climb onto the top? Did she climb up through the north wall is she on the inside or outside of the wall what does coming up to the north wall have to do with studying the sky now of course some answers to these questions get drip fed to us through the rest of the extract and and you can't write a perfectly self-contained first sentence surely godel's theorem taught us that much there will always be missing context there will always be questions the test is, are the questions the reader asks reading your first page compelling ones? Here are some examples of good questions I think a first line might evoke. Why is she angry? Who is this man fleeing from? Whatever will this narrator say next? Some bad ones might be, what on earth does the narrator mean? 
Did she go through the door or is she standing in front of it? Why should I care? And look, I see what you're going for here. The darker half of the sky is supposed to be like the clocks striking 13 in 1984, right? The reader's supposed to go, wait a minute, hang on, something's not right here. And then you do the reveal that this planet's orbit is such that the same part is always facing the sun and this part is in a perpetual sunrise. Which which is cool. It's a, it's a cool, cool, hooky thing, right, to have that. And I think it's interesting. But the way you deliver this... Um, le well, let's move on to the second sentence. It was always sunrise, and darker by no means meant dark, yet Thibith glowed so bright she hardly needed her telescope. So, see, so immediately you're qualifying that first sentence in a way that admits it was a bit of a cheat. It was always sunrise. Well, why mention it then? The answer is, of course, to trick the reader. Instead of describing the scene as Anis experiences it, applying a filter appropriate to con her concerns and emotional state, you're doing this cheap pull back and reveal. It's like writing, Nigel sat waiting, but not a single customer walked through the door. Customers never came through the door because Nigel's house wasn't a shop. Nigel was not a salesman. And bioweapons had turned almost every other human on the continent into a fungus zombie. Don't point something out if it's irrelevant or commonplace to your protagonist. The very fact that it's not noteworthy will grab our attention. Like, how do they tell the time here? Would she even call it sunrise? The sun isn't actually rising. It's just there, the eternal sun. Meteorological phenomena are going to be the only thing that mediate people's experience of the sky here. Basically... I would cut at sunrise in the first sentence. You wouldn't add while there was breathable air to a character's mundane action in literary fiction. It's assumed that the earth is surrounded with a layer of breathable air, touch wood. Such a state is not likely to excite comment or even direct conscious acknowledgement from the characters in a mundane, realist story. But you'd have characters drawing breath, right? not asphyxiating the instant they step outdoors. We could infer the presence of breathable atmosphere from how they moved through the world, right? Same in this story, same in your story. Like, maybe you could start, Anis climbed the north wall after dinner and studied the darker half of the sky. Don't hedge with darker by no means meant dark. Give us actual hues, textures and shades. Otherwise, we're two sentences in and you've already backtracked undermining your first sentence by going, well, when I said this, I don't mean this. It makes the narrator sound indecisive, nervous, pernickety. Commit and be specific. I do like the mention of Thibith, by the way, because that is specific and it is specific to this world. It feels real and you don't overplay it. And OK, cool. You're beginning to build this firmament of your fictional world. Just from the existence of a telescope and a named star, or perhaps planet, we're able to fill in so much of this world. Telescopes suggest optometry, physics, navigation. You need relatively sophisticated metalworking to be able to make one, which in turn implies sources of ore and the means and workforce necessary to extract, transport and smelt that ore, which implies rudimentary roads and probably some form of domesticated beast of burden. Of course, I, I, I'm aware that later on we find out that this telescope is actually ancient, so these things don't necessarily exist in this world. But still, the humble telescope is the Kevin Bacon of socio-cultural tech trees. And of course, you can undermine and thwart some of those assumptions that we start building. And 
most of this happens at a very unconscious, semi understood level uh, but there's something grounding about getting a specific like that you know a physical object that has some kind of resonance and the kind of world we provisionally sketch out in the swirling void of these first few sentences differs hugely depending on whether we see a telescope or a, a pizza box or an emp grenade and the same goes for those of you who write uh, fiction that is set in the real world that is literary fiction um, it, because it doesn't just apply to tech it applies to tone as well seeing a razor blade is going to give the opening of your story a very different uh, feel and a very different tone and a very different voice than if we see a lovely puppy so it's great to have something like that basically that's what I'm saying I loved how the telescope was there he was the smallest and least consequential of her planet's neighbours and usually a pale melon, not this shocking red. Now, I like the flow of this sentence. You certainly have a decent ear for the rhythms of prose, M. Usually a pale melon is confusing, though. I, 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 I'm assuming that you mean the colour, like it was usually a pale melon colour, but it could also be a suggestion of shape it is oddly literal um and, and that you go on to describe a color change when you say not this shocking red um implies you mean a pale melon color because you do that the kind of contrast implies that but it that's after we've already processed the preceding part of the sentence so then we have to sort of jump back if we misread it it's just it jars and it snags and it hooks um and what colour is pale melon, by the way? Uh, uh, yellow? Do you mean the flesh part of the melon? I don't know. Are we to understand that this is a planet on which melons grow? And where the protagonist is familiar enough with melons, or at least the concept of a melon, to use them mentally as her go-to comparison for this colour? Um, okay, so uh, having thought about this, I, I, I've then gone on uh, Google Images, and I discovered that melon is a peachy pink in the classical conception. I've learned something. I blame the patriarchy for my poor repertoire of feminine shades. Believe you me, I'm working on it. But for now, maybe pale pink or soft peach would be better not to exclude incomprehensibly macho bros like me because that's that's the sign of true masculinity, isn't it? You, I don't know any of the colours. The only colours I know are Cliff face grey, gunmetal silver, bronzed dog. No, anyway. I feel like the change in Thibis' colour is the key triggering event of this scene, right? At least for Anis, she's seen this ghastly portent in the sky. A troubling augury has appeared in the heavens. What could it mean? The fact that the sunrise is happening is completely irrelevant to that right in the same way that the castle still being there is completely irrelevant to her because it's not surprising at all so to make sure the structure of this scene and its chief concern are in alignment i'd open with the star right so maybe you start with like anis set her telescope on the battlement wall and studied the sky for portents in the darker half of the sky thibeth glowed a shocking red he was the smallest and least consequential of her planet's neighbours usually a timid peach against the velvet blue of the eternal dawn. I don't know. I'm, I'm always conscious that my example rewrites are far from perfect. And it's a bit of a, 
a twatty move to start rewriting someone else's work. It's not mine, it's yours. And you know what you're going for. You know where this story is leading. And so always, always, always trust your judgment over mine on this. I'm just demonstrating one way that you might prioritise the release of information, which is so, so important at the beginning of a story. Starting with the protagonist's name, which you did originally, uh, is good. So let's centre her. I think that I think you're absolutely right to start with the word Anis because um, it assume I assume that this is a story about her, and that's cool. So you've done some stuff perfectly, right? But after that, the fact that the sun never moves in relation to the horizon is something. We can infer incidentally, it'll be much cooler and more striking for the reader to go, oh shit, <laughs> right? Like um, I, like my understanding is, for example, in the Game of Thrones books, I think I'm right in saying that there's no, there's no moon to the planet. The planet doesn't have a moon. I don't know, but I assume that's not... Characters don't look out the window and go, he looked into the moonless sky and thought, there's no moon out there tonight. Now I'm going to have sex with someone, but not before... I've had some wine and done a murder. I've never read the Game of Thrones book, so I'm, I'm just guessing based on cultural osmosis and prejudice. But, uh, you know, the, it's, an, it's a piece of information that you can glean. You don't need to know it straight off the bat. Anyway, sidebar, uh, now we're getting into world building. What are the implications of a geostationary sun? I, I suppose that depends on, on whether what you're describing is a new phenomenon, a magical one, or whether it's always been this way. Would sleep cycles evolve the same way for people living on this planet and animals? Would some animals migrate between hemispheres, between day and night? We know that in the absence, in the absence of an extinction event, the number of non-zero-sum relationships, that is to say co-evolutionary, cooperative relationships in a closed ecosystem, increases until it reaches peak biodiversity so in what ways do plants and creatures adapted to this series of segmented environments support one another what plants grow in a permanent twilight photosynthesis is probably going to be limited right i don't know whether it evens out because the sun is always rising but always kind of setting so there's like limited light or Maybe they need to be either super efficient at photosynthesis or they need to be semi-carnivorous to make up the deficit in sugars. What animals do plants need to attract in order to spread their seeds and germinate in this weird twilight? There's going to be... It's going to be... I mean, where Anis is now is going to be a land of long shadows. East-facing walls are going to be covered with climbing plants and flowers just soaking up that sunshine, though that, that constant battering of photons and light and heat. Western-facing walls, on the other hand, are going to be coated in wet mosses and fungus. They are never, ever going to see the sun. Plants generally grow towards sunlight, so the whole landscape is going to have this tilt, this palpable lean eastwards as, as plants grope for sunlight uh, the way coastal trees often grow blasted shoreward by winds off the sea how if you're designing houses in that how does that affect architecture because that's really fascinating to me right if that if that plant's always been like that how do you design your house do you have the rooms you sleep in on the dark side of the house i i don't know but then you don't get woken up by and you do you have who knows right but that's to me is fascinating and gives you all sorts of stuff to work with end sidebar without question he was warning her but of what i really like this bit it's good clear quick it frames the tension for the reader i don't think it's patronizing it just gets in and goes bum, bum, bum. it's fine really like that 
She set the ancient telescope against the unfinished battlement wall and turned resignedly to her books. The combination of ancient, unfinished and resignedly feel to me like three tranquilizer darts shot into the rampaging bear of this sentence, bringing it crashing down. I I'm not even sure how someone instills the act of rotation with resignation. I would cut all those words. I realise that my uh, mellifluous voice and uh, talent for reading things out probably made the sentence sound uh, more flowy than it did. I mean, you might see, I mean, uh, what do you think? She set the ancient telescope against the unfinished battlement wall and turned resignedly to her books versus she set the telescope against the wall and turned to her books. There's your choice. I think the second one's better. And I don't, it doesn't feel, I don't, not like, oh, this, where's all the colour got been leached from the land? I don't understand what's going on. I just think, look, the first two feel like you're co covering the text in world building sprinkles, right? They feel like little digs in the ribs, little nudges going, a, a, ancient telescope. Oh, look, the telescope's ancient. Does that mean it's surviving tech from a prelapse Aryan golden age or simply the beloved antique of a colonist? Look, I don't think you need to complicate the text by raising those sort of questions at this point. Later, yes. I mean, the, the existence that it's a telescope is already gives us that. You don't need to just keep sort of like making sure we've got it. The same with unfinished battlement wall. Why didn't they finish building it? I feel myself being prodded to ask. It's not crumbled down. Either it's a, a work in progress or for some reason the makers stopped. It just feels a bit on the nose, you know, for me at least. Uh, it's like writing Jim unfolded his camping chair and set it down upon the giant half-buried head of a statue clutching a torch. He wrapped the muter wolf meat in a charred newspaper bearing the headline Nuclear War Imminent. Look, I'm being a bit harsh, like for some readers, all those cues that I was picking out and jumping upon will be subtle, especially for readers who aren't readers of genre. Literary fiction readers routinely uh, miss the most heavy-handed clues of what's going on in a world uh, because they're not because they're not literate in the genre and they don't understand the ways it works and the and the ways that it clues you in to different things that we're supposed to understand about it. They take things as metaphors that are literal. They struggle to construct reasonable backstories of the world. Oh, I love you, uh, literary-only readers. You're wonderful, but there's such an amazing world of subtext that you could that you can learn to enjoy if you just fucking read some genre fiction, you douches. Uh, uh. Look, I, there's, for some readers, it's not going to be enough, What is what I'm saying. For some, it won't even be subtle. It will just, they won't get it. And, and there are definitely prolific fantasy readers out there who, not just literary fiction ones, but there are fantasy readers who want no subtext at all in their world building. They want you to say, the sun had been like this ever since anyone could remember, or it had always been this way since the Great Sundering, or since the first colonists landed on this planet 20,000 years ago, or whatever. And that's fine. I, I can't make a legitimate case for why that's wrong per se, because I don't think it intrinsically is. It's just a stylistic choice. You're allowed to do that. It's just a bit spoon-feedy for my taste. For me, it breaks my immersion. It, I, I feel like the uh, author is, is kind of like shoving a, a an encyclopedia in my face when I want to see a character. Now, you use the word crenellations. I use it in my work too, M. 
just to say, approximately 50% of readers won't know what the fuck you mean, even though it is irrefutably the most precise word for what you're talking about. It shows you know about castles. Well done. That's why I used it as well. So either you are happy with one in every two readers being baffled by that um, for the sake of looking clever. You certainly look like you know more than them or you change it. Maybe you could just change it to something... Uh, to just say battlements or something like that, which is close enough, right? I lack the strength of character to do that myself. I have an entire Jacob Marley-esque chain made link by link, yard by yard of wanky words I included purely to show off. You can avoid my fate. Save yourself. Thumbing through her books and notes, she cross-referenced what Thibith's shape, sheen, colour might signify. So are these notes written by Annis or by other people? If so, who? Since most aspects of astrology are dependent on the relative position of our planet to the sky, which it makes kind of like formations like the Grand Cross it seem rather silly, really, because it's only from the direction that we see. Anyway, sorry, I'm not slagging off. Uh, I am. Well, I was being critical of astrologers, but I was being unnecessarily critical of astrologers. I think what you do is uh, interesting and certainly rich with metaphor. However, um, if these books are pre this planet, then surely much of the information is going to be irrelevant. So either these have been written on this planet. I, look, I understand they could be in the same star system. She could have, you know, be a colonist from an adjacent planet or something like that. But I just don't see if something as fundamental as there being a day and night cycle is is not right in her books. How is all this really really gnarly technical shit going to be relevant as well i would imagine it's going to be a lot of work and if these are books from another planet then they're going to be full of marginalia by her maybe by her predecessors if she's had mentors i, I just think like that must be a a jury rigged set of uh, academic texts that she's working from and i think you could nod towards that because otherwise it kind of just flattens out something that's quite important which is she's basically presumably having to like reassemble quite a lot of the art of astrology for this new planet maybe not i'm making assumptions about the world but i'm doing that because i'm operating in a void and i think that brushing over with she looked through the books and made a few it just sounds a little bit glib for what i imagine would be an incredibly complex process the stars and planets had been telling her nothing for ages. And now this vague nonsense? Well, quite. Be very wary of having a character voice a criticism of the story that a reader might make. I suspect that's your subconscious talking to you there, right? It's just like the sky was telling her, her nothing. And then it continued to tell us her nothing. Who? I mean, like it's it's absolutely vague nonsense, and therefore not a very compelling hook to hang your story off, and it undermines Anis as a character as well. Why is she not just going? Well, that doesn't tell me anything, right? What do you gain from hedging like this? I you don't have to commit to astrology being real and having actual material effects on the world, but I would say you can still make it stark and specific without coming down on one side or the other on whether it actually works as a divination tool but i think either you make it very specific very compelling or just don't include it at all because it might as well just say an inciting incident will happen of course it will we're reading a story there's no way that that prophecy won't come true 
There's no way. I, 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 I actually can't think of a story I've read where there's like a big prophecy at the beginning that then never gets paid off on. And, and it's so tropey. It's so tropey that actually I find myself rolling my eyes slightly. I think either kind of go big on it and make it and create a timer in the story, make it reference something that we that, that is so specific that we'll know it when we see it, or just don't include it because just have the sky be completely unyielding to her desire to understand what's going to happen next. And then if you do that... Make sure you then come in with a reason why she's anxious to read the stars and why she's facing a threat, why she would need this divination. Otherwise, it's just like, you know, she might as well be just sort of like uh, you get getting her trowel and fork and going through her strawberry patch for all the tension there is in that scene. Look, overall, um, this isn't too bad. And I, I, I don't want to be I, I don't want to sound unintentionally damning i that you know that's pretty you know i don't know how many drafts you're in but that's you know that's pretty high praise for me i think the language flows nicely and and you've clearly thought about your world like i'm had all sorts of ideas while i was reading that and i think that is the sign of like good fantasy is that you just start it becomes like a little bit of a sandbox that the reader starts playing in themselves i got that out of that this which means you kind of justified it it's being fantasy in the first place that's cool i do think you need to shift your focus slightly from world building to character of course you want to lay out your uh, picnic blanket and then get out all your knives and forks and your hummus and your salad and stuff uh, we always want to put the spread out for the reader and then go and now you can dig in but they will have fucked off by then this is not a this isn't a picnic this is a, a ram raid and you need to cater to the fact that you are operating in a marketplace here You've not just got the readers to yourself. There are other books and there's other things and they're a sentient being made out of meat. Um, consciousness doesn't survive death. They've got a limited amount of time to spend in their lives and they're wasting some of it reading your book when they could be spending it with loved ones or masturbating or eating puff pastry, right? So make your story compelling from the beginning and make it make an offer that makes them feel like this is a good use of my time. Um, and a fictional world, look, it's because it's cool what you've done, right? It's really cool. And, and and so that's exciting. So all anything else is fixable. I just think a fictional world is only as interesting as the characters who inhabit it. And its history is only compelling to the degree that said history impacts the characters we care about. So what you need to put front and centre is Annis. You know, fuck the unchanging sky. Fuck the geostationary sun. That doesn't matter yet. It will do. But you need to induce an appetite for knowledge about this planet and its history before you start serving us up info dumps about it. And that appetite can only come from putting your efforts into creating this engaging character who faces a problem. Once we care about Anis, once we realise that how this planet got here and where it's going are things that are going to impact her life, we will follow you anywhere. Thanks very much for submitting, M, and best of luck with your revisions. Right, that's it. So send me your first pages if you'd like similar treatment. Send me your messages, send me your love, and please, the moment you feel overwhelmed or downhearted, set a timer for 10 minutes. Write on whatever you please until the time is up, then stop. I have never, 
ever felt worse at the end of that 10-minute process or regretted it. It won't knock other things out of your life. You have time for it. Please, please remember that as a tool in your bag of tricks. Right, so I've got some cool episodes coming up, more chats, more talks on subjects that are going to help you make big gains with your writing, exciting stuff in the pipeline. I'm super pumped. I hope you're feeling good. Please take care and once I go away, just take a moment to take a few deep breaths in and out. You are a sweet, sweet peach, my friend. Have a lovely rest of your day.